0: Whenever you make a purchase online, you expect a receipt to come in your email. Whenever you register for a new website, you need to verify your sign-up in your email. These types of emails are called transactional email, and sending these types of email at scale is a complex engineering task. J.R. Jasperson is the chief architect at SendGrid, a transactional email platform. On this episode, we discuss how email works, from the basics to the massive scale that SendGrid operates on. We also talk about email spam and fraud in detail. If you are a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we want to know how to improve. Please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There's a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website, and we would love to know what you think. There have only been a fraction of the listeners that have filled out the listener survey, and we really appreciate that, and we will stop talking about this in a couple weeks but in the meantime please if you haven't filled it out we really want to know what you think because we spend a lot of effort on this podcast and we want to make sure that effort is going in the right direction uh so the only way we figure that out is if we get feedback from you the listener so uh thanks for listening as usual and fill out the survey if you get the chance JR Jasperson is the chief architect at SendGrid, a transactional email platform. JR, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Jeff, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Let's start from a high level. What is transactional email? Why is it important for software engineers?
1: Okay, uh, transactional email, um, it's an individualized communication from a company to one of their customers or users. Typically, it's in response to a customer action Uh, a user interaction on the web app, um, sometimes a transaction like purchasing something. So examples would be things like uh, opt-in, confirmation emails, uh, getting receipts, shipping updates, password resets. Um, Second part of that question, why is it important? I think that this type of engagement is really the lifeblood of many companies today. Um, It helps facilitate a number of the facets of the uh, company and then the customer user relationship lifecycle. Um, by definition, transactional email is triggered typically by something the customer has done, or or the, the uh, provider is uh, conveying information that is pertinent to them. Um, so typically, transactional email is very desirable to the end user.
0: So we typically do shows about um, engineering topics that uh, can be can have. T- tons of scalability issues, uh, user issues, really hard engineering problems. But this show is about email. And to a naive you know, software developer, it might sound like, oh, it's just email. Like, Why is that interesting? So uh, for those types of people who are disillusioned, what are the kinds of engineering problems that are associated with transactional email? I
1: love this question. And uh, I fell into the same pitfall Uh, recently, joined SingRid about eight months ago. And, uh, you know, probably like many of your listeners, I have this like notion of how hard can it really be? Right. (laughs) And it it turns out that uh, deliverability and compliance is actually requires a tremendous amount of. Uh, data science, computer science. So, uh, if you want to contrast it to the normal problems that, uh, like, uh, your listeners typically face with, uh, like, web UIs, websites, web properties, a lot of the work that I've done in the past, those are largely synchronous systems, uh, request request response based. Uh, performance is, of course, of the utmost importance in systems like that. Um, on the flip side of that coin, though, a great deal of the content in like, a website, as an example, or a UI, is cacheable. Um, you know, statics like images, CSS, JavaScript, et cetera. So not to oversimplify, but um, generally when you're trying to scale a web property like that, most of your problems revolve around scaling state, um, specifically writing to databases. Email um, inherently is asynchronous, of course, which everyone knows. And you might think that that is far simpler to scale than a synchronous web property, but actually manifests in a ton of really interesting um, different challenges, sometimes the same. In Sigrid's case, the top of the funnel, um, meaning the volume and the rate at which we accept mail to be delivered on behalf of our customers, is technically unbounded, right? So we're not rate limiting on inbound mail requests, as an example. Uh, The egress of our system, though, the rate at which we're able to deliver mail to ISPs is not unbounded. Um, The egress rates of are, are limited by the ISPs to which we're delivering mail, sometimes called the recipient domain. And that's really governed by kind of a tuple of the sender, the IP address from which we're delivering mail, and then the IP address or IP addresses of the recipient domains.
0: So, so when you mentioned compliance a minute ago, is, mm-hmm. are you referring to like compliance with the ISP?
1: Uh, compliance in the email industry is describing uh, the notion of keeping the bad guys out, right? So it's, it's almost the flip side of the coin with deliverability. Deliverability is the art and science of getting email in the inbox. Compliance is the art and science of keeping unwanted mail, meaning you know spam, uh, phishing, etc., out of out of the inbox. Right.
0: Mm. Okay. So before we get into some of the uh, more in-depth engineering problems, let's just talk about. Like email from a very simple, like protocol level, because I think, you know, many engineers, including myself, don't actually really understand how it works because in school we weren't studying SMTP. I mean, at least I wasn't. So, what happens when I send an email on a mail client like Gmail or Hotmail? Just give me as much detail as I need to know to understand what is going on when I actually click send on an email.
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, typically, so I'll describe when you're sending mail from one system or one domain to another, like um, if you're sending from uh, your personal email, which, you know, uh, Gmail or Yahoo, something along those lines, to someone else, maybe an atsingrid.com address as an example. So the, the thing that the user's interacting with is in specific parlance referred to as the mail user agent, um, in the old days, that would have been kind of a, a fat client on your computer. And so, of course, a lot of people still prefer to use those. Um, you know, think of things like Outlook. Um, more often than not nowadays, though, that, of course, would be a, a web UI that you'd be interacting with like, like Gmail or uh, Google's inbox. Um, that's referred to as a mail user agent or the MUA. Um, technically speaking, uh, once you hit send, that gets sent along to something called a mail submission agent or an MSA. Um, that's that's basically a piece of software that's designed to accept email on behalf of, you know, from the clients. That will then pass it along to something called the MTA or the mail transfer agent. Um, those are often, the MSA and MTA are in many cases uh, the same software configured perhaps a little bit differently, oftentimes co-located on the same servers. Um, the mail transfer agent is going to do a, a DNS lookup for the MX record. Um, and that'll define you know, the IP address or addresses to which uh, the recipient domain is to accept email. Um, in some cases, there's intermediate MTAs where one MTA is going to pass to another as as a so, sort of a store and forward protocol SMTP is. Ultimately, it ends up at the mail delivery agent or the MDA. And then the kind of the, the last mile is, it determines based on um, how the users set up their email box. So like the old days was POP. Um, as an example, more likely nowadays you would encounter something like IMAP where the, the mails will actually be stored um, instead of actually forwarded onto a user's FAT client, which would be the case with POP.
0: Okay. And so you, you discussed a lot of layers of handoffs and uh, different types of servers. Um, and I want to get a definition for the term email server, because uh, you know we've obviously heard this term before, but... What does that actually mean? What is an email server? What are the responsibilities of an email server?
1: That's probably a little bit of an amorphous term, and, and just because uh, you know, by by definition, an email server would be something that is running software for accepting, storing, forwarding email, um, and depending on the implementation on your service provider. Um, and the recipient domain that could mean any number of things. Generally speaking, though, when when people say email server, that's typically referring to the MTA, um, and in some cases maybe the MDA. So that's the mail transfer agent, the mail delivery agent.
0: So when people talk about SMTP, I think it's Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. What uh, what exactly like in that end-to-end process that you described with Yahoo or you know one inbox sending an email to another. How much of that is like can be described by SMTP? Like, where like is that is, is that Simple Mail Transfer Protocol? Does that mean the process, the protocol of the process end to end, or is there some specific subset of responsibilities within that end to end process that are classified as SMTP?
1: Okay, so technically speaking, um, SMTP may not be used uh, as an example. If you were for a small business. Um, and you're sending intra-office email right from uh, you know, the person in the cubicle next to you uh, or to your boss, that may technically not be uh, following the SMTP protocol. Typically, though, um, SMTP will be employed in email is being sent from one system to another. Um, so for all intents and purposes, SMTP is the lingua franca of the
0: email world. Okay. And what is the term SMTP Relay?
1: Uh, In email parlance, um, a relay is simply the act of store and forward um, an email from one system to another. Um, So are you're referring to just a relay or an SMTP relay service?
0: An SMTP relay service.
1: Okay, perfect. So as I was mentioning, relay is that act of storing and and forwarding or transferring an email from one system to another. An SMTP relay service um, is kind of a niche of service providers – um the act is kind of trusted third parties that are delivering email on behalf of one of their customers typically so companies that are customers of the SMTP relay service provider right so in the case of singrid as an example that would be sending email on behalf of uber right so it hits uh, your inbox it's a receipt from uber but that's technically going through singrid's infrastructure
0: so the relay here is uber hands off a message to SendGrid, and SendGrid is acting as the SMTP relay service for Uber's transactional email.
1: That's right. Okay.
0: Um, so, uh, you know, if, if I'm a company like Uber, I'm sending tons of transactional emails for receipts, for rides, and then like password reminders. What, what are the kinds of scalability problems that Uber would hit if it was just using uh, normal SM, you know, just trying to send all the emails by themselves, like try to roll, trying to roll their own SMTP relay?
1: Sure. So, first and foremost, I think as volume increases, deliver, deliverability rates tend to suffer in part due to the volume itself. Um, as ISPs or the, the, basically the email service providers for your recipients start to see massive amounts of email, in particular if that content happens to be the same as would be the case with like a marketing email, um, those start to look more and more like spam at volume, right? So if a company goes from sending 1,000 emails a day uh, to 10,000, um, that's, that's going to look a little bit suspicious from the recipient domain's perspective. The ability to understand the factors that impact the deliverability and the throughput of the email through your system um, implies and requires a specialized set of expertise so as companies scale up, they they will tend to spend an increasing amount of time and money on the care and feeding of the infrastructure, the software required to support it. Um, in Sigrid's case, you know, by solving that for our customers, we allow that we allow them to focus on the facets of their business which they're uh, striving to be or are already world class at, and that's differentiating for their business.
0: Okay, and uh, you know, since we're talking about SendGrid and Uber. Um, like, How does SendGrid differ from other SMTP relay services?
1: I love this question. Um, I think, I think SendGrid has a unique, special secret sauce, and it's just an awesome equation for us that I think personally is a differentiating advantage. First is passion. Um, we have a, a very interesting culture at SendGrid focusing on what we call the four H's, happy, hungry, honest, and humble. And that's not just stuff you know, like the placard for the lobby, right? We literally use that as a metric when we're hiring. We use that as a measuring stick for our reviews. Um, and there's a, there's a great deal of emphasis put on that, which I absolutely love. Um, if, you, if you couple that with the tremendous expertise and experience we have and the advantage that we have, uh, both by being first mover and due to being a, a huge player in this space, um, this really uh, equals magic. And it manifests in strong delivery rates um, meaning, more of the emails that you're sending uh, as a company get to the inbox of the people that you're trying to reach and engage with. Um, we have the largest support and account management services team in the industry. We can provide that single pane of glass, uh, both for sending transactional email and if you're sending marketing mail. Um, you could do both of those and understand how uh, your engagement is working with your customer base from a single pane of glass. The integration is fairly simple, it's API driven. And again, just to reiterate that point, we have this advantage of, of volume, um, which allows us to accelerate our expertise, and it really ends up driving tremendous insights. So we work with our customers um, daily to solve uh, this problem of how can we better engage with the 1.5 billion customers of the customers or, or the people to which we de- we've delivered email.
0: So you've mentioned a couple times that your email's if you're so like if you're if you're delivering from an kind of an untrusted provider there are all these different places in the funnel where the email can drop can drop off it can be marked as spam or it can fall off in some other way can you describe some of the ways that emails fall through the cracks and this is particularly important for transactional emails cuz people need to get their receipts people need to get their password reminders give me an idea of the different places where these emails can fall through the cracks if there is an untrusted provider uh, of those emails? Sure,
1: um, that's a great question. And um, it's an interesting metric, which again, if you're not you know, working in the, in the email space, is probably a surprise. It certainly was for me when I came to Syngrid. But a little bit north of 20% of emails that are delivered never actually get to the inbox. They don't even get the opportunity to get into the spam folder of the inbox. Right. So, uh, you know, you mentioned emails falling through the cracks and we're not talking just uh, kind of nickels and dimes in the back of your couch. You know, 20 percent is, is a pretty massive amount of email, like, you know, good and valid email that's falling through. So, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, with SMTP, it's a store forward protocol and there, there can be numerous steps in the process. But in, in terms of the actual deliverability, once it gets to you, you know, first and foremost, of course, Mail infrastructure health uh, from origin to destination, every step along the way. And of course, because of storm four nature of SMTP, <clears throat> if there's a transient condition, like you know, a service is is you know freaking out or restarting or is oversubscribed, um, naturally there's retry mechanisms built into it. But that matters in, in terms of deliverability and in particular the velocity, right? In terms of how quickly an email gets once you hit send to when it hits the inbox, the content of the message matters a lot. Um, Spam filters and email service providers are going to look at and evaluate what is in the content of the message and how spammy it looks to them. Uh, stale address lists uh, matter. So if you're sending to a bunch of email addresses and ISP notices that you've, you've stepped on spam traps, as an example, um, or it's, which, which might make it look like you've bought a list. You've bought email addresses for email addresses that they can definitively prove did not opt in because it's not a human on the back end of that email address. Um, and then, in particular, sender history and the reputation matters quite a bit. And that includes you know, the origin, the source IPs, past behavior, the content of your emails, and then, in particular, recipient behavior. And what I mean by that is, uh, as an example, how many of these emails that you've sent that, that have a, a certain look and feel, which are being evaluated in real time uh, by the ISPs, how many of those are, are some of your recipients clicking the, you know, this is spam button? All of that is going to ultimately impact your deliverability. And then, you know, of course, I guess I'd be uh, remiss not to point out, spam filters aren't perfect. Sometimes uh, they can be overly aggressive. Sometimes they're simplistic. Sometimes you're uh, doing something that a spam filter might flag a spam, even if it wasn't.
0: So given that there is this kind of economy of scale with trust, like the more volume you have, uh, the more trust you get, it sounds like... Um, does this become like a winner-take-all market for SMTP relay service in the long run? Uh, no, I
1: don't think so. I mean, it's definitely, um, it's definitely has some characteristics of, of a zero-sum game, right? But the reality is, uh, if as volume is increasing and continues to increase for email, right, there is a certain indiscreet set of IPs that are used to send that email, um, there's enough room for that pie to continue to expand, right? Sure. So really, to me, the the game and and part of what makes working at Syngrid awesome um, and interesting because these are interesting engineering challenges is that the reputation of those IPs that we use to send our email is the lifeblood of our company and for our customers, right? Meaning, so as an example, if we have two customers that are using the same IP and one of those customers starts sending spammy email, it'll have a bleed over effect, right? If they're sharing the same IP, right? So uh, for Syngrid, the name of the game is to really uh, focus not just on the deliverability aspects, right? But we we stand to benefit tremendously from stopping as much spam, ideally, of course, all spam and phishing from flowing through our system. Because regardless, that's damaging our IPs, which has bleed over effect.
0: So let's talk about that a bit, because that's such an interesting problem to me. The uh, the spammer versus, I mean, I first encountered this in college in some class about uh, information classification and retrieval where there was the classic question of, you know, uh, you you operate, uh, you know, you're like Gmail, right? And, and you have to detect spam emails and it's this constant war of attrition between spammers and uh, and the you know Gmail as a as a service, um, but you guys are kind of tackling a different spam problem, I imagine, because you have to prevent spammers from being on your platform. Because if you have a spammer on your platform sending a bunch of email, they're going to erode that trust that is essentially the benchmark of your business. Uh,
1: absolutely. So in terms of combating spam, I mean, first and foremost, trust. Um, is the foundation of a healthy email ecosystem, right? And, and by and large, email gets trusted. Um, as spam filters are getting more effective, uh, machine learning practices help tremendously. Obviously, you can't have humans, um, you know, monitoring every single email. And really, the, the key to the, this particular battle is paying close attention to the signal and noise ratio, right? And if you want to look at it from that perspective, spam filters are definitely winning, um, you might be surprised to learn, um, according to Cisco Centerbase, spam versus non-spam ratio is about 87% spam and 13% legitimate email, right? And that doesn't necessarily manifest in what's in your spam folder in your inbox if you're using you know, Google as an example. Much of that gets dropped on the edge before it ever even gets to your spam folder. So it's a remarkable statistic, um, and it is it is – Uh, representative of one of the more interesting facets of working in this space.
0: Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, so do you guys have to do, does SendGrid have to do any machine learning on your end or do you, do you have some services that you sort of outsource that work to?
1: It's, it's a mix and mash of both. Uh, we certainly use, um, third party providers in some cases and in some cases, in some cases, we're using internally developed stuff that's you know kind of custom and bespoke for us. So we leverage both.
0: Okay, cool. So let's let's talk about the SendGrid architecture as a whole. Describe to me the SendGrid architecture. Like when uh, if I'm Uber and I'm accessing uh, SendGrid to, to send transactional emails over time. How am I interfacing with the architecture?
1: Okay. So, you know, first and foremost, through the setup process, both for the transactional email or for our marketing email, of course, we have a UI, which will facilitate configuring your account, setting things up on your side, right? Um, uh, uploading your uh, marketing list as an example, if you're using a marketing product. Once it actually comes to the nitty-gritty of sending email, um, typically you're going to be interfacing with uh, either an API or REST-based API, or uh, through SMTP directly. Um, once we accept that mail, uh, we geodistribute our API endpoints to accept mail very quickly. Um, so those are, are going to be located, and you as an end user, you'll be routed to a location that is nearest you. Um, then that gets forwarded into our pipeline. Uh, that's kind of where the most of the heavy lifting is going to occur. Uh, that's where we'll be uh, you know, translating things from a template as an example that you might have provided. Right, where if you're sending a marketing email, I might say, hi, you know, user, um, and then you're providing a list of names and associated with email addresses that you'll be sending that stuff to. That's where all that processing happens. That's where we're doing a lot of our um, internal compliance activities, ensuring that the, the content looks valid to us, um, the detection that we're doing at that stage, looking for spam, looking for malicious activity. As an example, if, you're, uh, you know, if your company is working with Syngrid and your credentials get hijacked, uh, like a not uncommon use case might be your credentials are in GitHub and it's a public repo as an example. Uh, stuff like that has happened once or twice in the past. Um, so that's where we're doing that analysis and ultimately our MTAs and we're delivering it. Um, and then you, you also have kind of the post delivery pipeline, stuff that people don't often think about, clicks and open, bounces, spam reports, those metrics that um, are incredibly valuable and insightful to uh, Syngrid's customers.
0: Okay. So you described a lot there. And one specific question I have, uh, you know, we, we've had this ongoing discussion on software engineering daily, where there is this increasing volume of interesting software products that you can take off the shelf shelf and just, you know, use and, uh, kind of solve your problem for you. And uh, one of the products that I think about with the conversation that we're having right now is Amazon's Simple Email Service, which is uh, kind of, a you know, one of their AWS offerings. Um, it's kind of, you know, you can do bulk emails and it's it's sort of like a, um, a you know, multi-use API. It's like the, the EC2 for emails, it's yeah. kind of. Um, so I'm curious... If you guys have considered using this, uh, how that would contrast with your, your own infrastructure. Um, yeah, I'd love, I'd love some, some discussion on, on build versus buy.
1: Sure. So, you know, in, in my mind, there's sort of uh, three vertices of that equation, build, buy, partner, right? And I think that's one that all businesses really need to continuously wrestle with, uh, meaning that's not uh, a question that you answer once and you never have to address it again. Right. Obviously, software
0: is. What a, do you mean, partner?
1: Partner. So uh, that would be using uh, another company. So build would be buying commercial software buying a license for it. Right. Buy. Uh, excuse me. Uh, so that would that would be representative of buy. Build would be uh, something that we're going to uh, author ourselves with our engineers, and then partner would be uh, you know entering a partnership with another service provider. Right where uh, it can be mutually beneficial to both cases. Oh, both,
0: both okay. I see.
1: So uh, build-by-partner equation, again, I think it's something that needs to be continuously reexamined to make sure that we continue to make the choices in the best interest, both of Syngrid as a company and, of course, our customers. Um, and I think there's a number of interesting facets that, that uh, factor into that equation, including uh, you know fit-for-use case, uh, incumbent expertise and capacity capability, and then as well as the relative and the current weight of the importance and that trade off between time and money. All of those things factor into those decisions when we make them at Syngrid.
0: Okay, so Amazon SES specifically, did you guys consider that or? So Syngrid existed you
1: know, before SES uh, oh. was a thing, right? So really, Syngrid's founders. We're actually you know, working on other startups and they had other ideas. And this, this happened to be a problem they kept bumping into where they're trying to send transactional email from their app and they're noticing that emails are just are hitting a wall somewhere, right? And nobody was, was really focusing on this. So actually Syngrid's origins come from this ancillary, you know, this uh, uh, sort of a tangential effort and keep bumping into this problem with different startups. And uh, our founders realizing, hey, nobody's really solving this problem. And so, really, in 2009, SendGrid pioneered this space. So, to, to directly answer your question, Amazon's simple, you know, SES wasn't a thing when SendGrid started.
0: Okay. So, it sounds like SendGrid kind of built the Heroku for email before Amazon built the EC2
1: version. <laughs> that, that's an interesting analogy. I like it.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, are there any other interesting build versus buy decisions that you guys have made recently? Like, you know, I, I know you mentioned, you know, machine learning you use a combination of off-the-shelf products and your own in-house stuff. Yeah,
1: two come to mind that were fairly recent. Um, one was involving uh, the use of durable distributed storage, and then another is with distributed queuing. Uh, we looked at both these carefully, um, and then with those those aforementioned considerations in mind, one case we we opted to leverage open source and in the other we did, we opted to build
0: it in-house. Well, can you go into those more? that's that sounds like a very interesting conversation.
1: in the case of queuing i will I will tell you that uh, you know so i'm I'm not interested in rediscovering the wheel right uh, in my role in my role. It is, it is not in the best interest of the company for us to focus efforts on solving solved problems, right? So naturally, uh, in, in my role, I am always looking for situations where we can leverage things that are already out there. We have a, a particularly interesting use case at Syngrid, and there didn't seem to be anything out there that was a perfect fit. So earlier, I would alluded to that fit to use case. Um, typically with open source software, I mean, if you're absolutely lucky, it might be a perfect slam dunk and it's just install, you know, some config realistically, in my experience, um, there's some lifting that needs to be done to get it the last mile to tweak it, to do exactly what you need. Um, but when you're examining that divide, right, uh, you need to make sure that it's, it's uh, cost effective and that the juice is worth the squeeze for your company uh, versus something that is not a very good fit, and we're going to have to build a bridge to Hawaii in order to make this thing work. In the case of distributed queuing, um, I didn't find anything out there. We looked, just didn't see anything that was that was going to be a good fit for us. Uh, I found an interesting repo, super promising on GitHub. It was by one of the one of the gorillas of distributed internet computing, and I was really excited. And then the the first line of the readme was "Don't do this," right? So, <laughs> so I, I was looking to go down that path of leveraging something that was already out there, um, and unfortunately, it just didn't seem to be there. So, that led to us trying to examine how how we might solve this problem internally. And some of our engineers here had a brilliant idea, and we're currently in the process of pursuing that now.
0: Wow. Okay. So, Kafka didn't work for you. ZeroMQ didn't work for you. And I mean, I take that. I take the rest of your implication to mean that <laughs> that uh, SQS didn't work for you. Uh, you know, Azure Event Hubs didn't work for you. To, like none of the none of the buy options were were good. So if you're examining
1: what Singrid does and where email will queue, and uh, earlier I was alluding to this top of funnel that is unbounded, right? And then the egress is bounded, and meaning it's finite. It's a function of. The IPs of the recipient domains and the IPs that we're sending from, and the centers themselves—it's that tuple that really governs our concurrency, our, our throughput, of our egress rate. Right. So inevitably, you, you need some sort of differential. If you you know, in a car analogy, to translate these two things that are potentially at different velocities. If you examine those, uh, you know, if you mentioned some some queuing technologies like ZeroMQ, RabbitMQ, ActiveMQ, you know, StarMQ. Really, uh, you know, there's a billion of them. Those, are, those tend to be built to go super high throughput, but not super wide. And in the case of Syngrid's volume, you have a massive width and volume that you have to deal with, right? And so it's something that is not inherently obvious when you're looking at these systems. Um, for what it's worth, we are using Kafka uh, for a different use case, not for this particular one. But when it comes to delivering emails, we have a number of different queues uh, that would be required. And that's going to be way wider than what... Uh, those software were designed to handle. So, like, as an example, in the case of Kafka, obviously it can handle, you know, 110 billion transactions a second, whatever. I, I think that's the actual number. <laughs> but where, where it'll start to suffer is if if you're trying to go wide with a number of topics, you know, ultimately it ends up being Um, the Z nodes in Zookeeper is going to be the pinch point in an instance of Kafka, right? So each partition will have at least one Z node, each topic will have at least one partition, and then of course that will vary depending on the partitions and your consumer groups and the like in Kafka, right? And that number happens to be around 10,000, and so you you start to see diminishing returns as the width of queues increases, the throughput and efficiency of an instance of Kafka And, and by the way, to my knowledge, this is true of all the queuing systems that are really out there um, it's just a different problem to solve. It's not the throughput that you're, you're worried about. It's the discrete paths through your, the queuing system that starts to become a scaling bottleneck.
0: Wow, okay, fascinating. And I. so I guess that answers the question of the... Uh... Of the of the buy option because you're, you're the buy options are probably built on the same kind of technology that Kafka's built. I mean, event hubs are. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure about SQS, and uh, and I assume they're going to charge you uh, relative to how much you're or they're going to charge you on scale with how much you're uh, strangling the uh, the the bottlenecks that you just referred to that you would experience if you were rolling your own version of Kafka.
1: Yeah, you, I mean, you can certainly do it, right? I'm, I'm not implying that it can't be done. Of course, it's software. Uh, we can do anything in software, as we like to say, <laughs> right? Um, just is it, is it cost-effective for us, both in times of the infrastructure required to support it, right, and then the amount of time that we'd have to sink into making something work, right? So if we're trying to extend one of these existing technologies. And again, I just want to stress the point that, you know, when you're designing software, that sort of width through depth um, no software is a panacea and awesome at everything, right? And it it just happens to be a sort of a unique use case that is just kind of out of the center mass of what those software were designed to do.
0: Got it. Okay. Well, let's talk about scalability. Um, as the chief architect of SendGrid, you you have a front row seat to any scalability issues that the company is tackling. You just mentioned a very interesting one with the uh, kind of the the how, why Kafka doesn't work for you um, and. I'd love to get an idea of other scalability issues that come with a service that is responsible for sending billions of emails.
1: You bet. So the first thing I think that I would point out is that the initial architecture that was really designed uh, largely by the three founders of Syngrid has proven incredibly resilient and scalable. I mean, who wouldn't like to be uh, known for building something that went from zero, zero emails a day to literally 23 billion a month? I mean, that's, that's almost a billion a day. Being able to do that without a major re is an unbelievable accomplishment. And I, I've been thoroughly impressed with that. Um, in former lives, I've dealt a lot with mergers acquisitions. Um, I've had the uh, fortune of working at some of the larger internet companies on the planet. I've seen my share of tech debt and just stuff that really started to get crushed by its own mass. I was absolutely blown away at how good this, these systems were designed initially. Truly incredible. Um, with that said, though, you know, there's, there's absolutely some known limitations to the existing architecture that has kind of this inverse relationship between scale and efficiency. And what I mean by, by that is as the scale continues to increase, certain facets of the architecture are becoming less and less efficient. Uh, this isn't a fire drill today, like uh, you know, not a P1 crisis. But obviously, if you extend that paradigm into the future, you, you can see that there is a finite shelf life for it in its current state. So we're actually in the the midst of addressing some of those now. Um, Some of the facets of those challenges that we're looking at um, include improving our durability, uh, improving and decreasing um, fault isolation or blast radius, uh, respectively, Um, eradicating thrashing in our systems and hotspots, cleaning up our venting, I I alluded to Kafka earlier, Um, both processing and our cache efficiency, and then improving our statelessness and ephemerality.
0: Early on in this conversation, we kind of touched on the fact that scaling an an email service is different than scaling a high availability website. What are the scalability challenges that are different? I would love to go into into those into more detail. Sure. So I was,
1: earlier on, we were talking about that top of funnel for SynGrid. And what I mean by that is the volume the rate that, that which Syngrid is accepting email on behalf of our customers is an unbounded number that, of course, as Syngrid grows, just continues to go up. And I've also alluded to the, the fact that the egress uh, is bounded, meaning we, we cannot change. There's nothing I can change or we can change within Singrid to increase the speed at which ISPs are going to be accepting mail. That's a finite and a known quantity it's governed by the tuple of the sender IP address, uh, the delivery IP address, the recipient domain IP address. Um, so really, there's some really interesting challenges um, in terms of, of trying to be that differential between scale of the burstiness of ingress and the impedance mismatch with the egress rate. Um, That, to me, is a super fascinating problem. We've talked about the two sides of the coin between deliverability and compliance, right? On one side, we want to be able to to deliver 100% of the emails near instantaneously. Um, That's a a superb goal and a fun engineering challenge, especially when you're thinking about a billion a day. And by the way, to to put that in perspective, um, Jeff, this is something that's that's sometimes easy to lose sight, kind of lose the forest through the trees. That's like 30% more than tweets a day. That, mm-hmm. that Syngrid handles, right? So that just gives you a, a sense wow. of, of the gravity there, right? That we're talking, yeah, that's about, huge. we're talking about a lot, right? So you you have this really interesting uh, two sides of the coin between deliverability and compliance, um, and this th- so this would include you know hijacked accounts, like someone might have put their credentials somewhere they shouldn't have, or their password got reversed, right? Or you know disgruntled employee leaves company. I mean, there's any number of ways this can happen, and of course also Syngrid enables um, white labeling resellers, right? Which can manifest in we don't necessarily control uh, their it's, in this case is like our customers, customers. If you go back to that, harken back to the Heroku model, we don't necessarily control the sign up flow for all of those customers. Yep. We, ha- we have an existing partnership with a third party, um, so some of those can be uh, nefarious actors. And the uh, you know there's a lot of uh, there's a pretty big carrot dangling still for spammers. The return on investment is staggering uh, just mm-hmm. simply because it's, it's incredibly cheap to send email, right? Yep. So you only need one person to think that you're the, you know, whatever, uh, prince of an African country and all they need to do is, you know, <laughs> you only need a couple of those and it pays for itself remarkably, right? So yeah. it's this constant game of cat and mouse, which I think is a fascinating problem. So you have all the machine learning that goes behind that, the big data, the data science um, and balancing those two sides of the coin is an awesome, fun, super, super challenge for us.
0: Totally, uh, you know, you mentioned that when SendGrid was getting started, the founders made some very intelligent uh, decisions with regard to scalability, uh, and I think I think it brings brings up something very interesting. Like the the more I think about. The way to build software these days, I think it's there is actually a sharp difference in one of the tenets that people used to hold, like maybe a decade ago, where there was this idea that you should just build software and then throw it over the wall and just like kind of hope for the best. I I feel like you you know these days we have the option to build scalability into the product um, a lot more easily, and you know whereas in the past it was sort of like a premature optimization. In the present, it's more like, okay, you spend an extra day or two planning around scalability and you can just have it. Um, Do you think that's accurate?
1: That's that's a tough question. I think the answer is a little bit dependent um, on the situation that you find yourself in. So as an example, uh, if you and I, Jeff, decide to go start a company, obviously the barriers of entry have been tremendously lowered through the cloud services that are out there right there's existing software super easy integrations api driven um solutions that are out there where we don't have to tackle every single problem right Uh, so i mean Syngrid's a perfect example of that if if we're going to go start a company we don't have to go worry about deliverability rates and and all the shenanigans that goes on with making email simple um that's, that's already out there. It's API-driven, simple integration for us, right? And then in that sense, I think software companies can definitely focus on those core differentiators. I mean, like Uber would be a really good example. If you think about the work that Google Maps has done with their API, uh, a lot of that heavy lifting is done and you can just focus on, on what makes your product or company special. So in that case, I think that's true. Um, on the flip side, though, um, tons of interesting new challenges that are manifesting daily, right? Uh, you know, it, it used to be when I started in, you know, working with internet companies almost 20 years ago, uh, you know, we had massive relational databases backed by sand, millions of dollars of hardware. Because scaling uh, in that in, in the way that is now kind of commonplace, those conditions that have led to the rise of of NoSQL solutions like Cassandra as an example, those conditions weren't really there, and you didn't have to worry about. Uh, you know different form factors right uh, all you had to do is deliver something over the internet you didn't you know smartphones weren't a thing tablets weren't a thing so it's interesting i mean in my in my 20 years working in this industry uh just kind of the, the internet industry it, it's interesting because as we solve one problem we create others as technology advances we have all these new capabilities which just means additional corner cases that have to be accounted um uh, accounted for so i just think the problems are shifting
0: Interesting. So, uh, you know, you mentioned you've worked in internet technologies for almost 20 years. You've lived through both the 1999 crash and the 2008 uh, financial crisis. Uh, Maybe there's another crash among them. I can't remember exactly. But uh, what did you learn about those crashes that was notable and do you see anything from those events that resemble today? Because, you, you know, we hear all this bubble talk, obviously.
1: Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think, in, in my opinion, and not being, you know, a financial or business expert, certainly not a Harvard MBA, um, you know, what, what seems to be the recurring theme is that business fundamentals matter, right? So if you, if you look at that internet bubble of the, of the late 90s, early 2000s, it turns out that you can't just focus on growth and not focus on, <laughs> on cash burn right? or profitability. Like It turns out companies actually have to make money at some point in time or those dollars are going to dry up. right? And, and you saw a huge rash of that in the 2000s. Um, it's interesting that it seems like to some extent we didn't fully learn our lessons um, in that second uh, crash that you mentioned in kind of the late 2000s, um, 2007, 2008. Um, you still saw companies that had not sound business fundamentals um, and were taking cash at just ridiculous multiples you know based on the the true prospects and profitability of their business. So you know generally speaking, of course the market's cyclical. you see a couple years of bull um, followed by you know a, a correction, a couple years of bear. but you know typically the upswing tends to be longer than the downswing if you look historically, right But to me, I mean the, just the bottom line, Seems to be business fundamentals matter, right? At the end of the day, businesses exist to make money. Um, growth is super important, and that's something that you certainly need to be focusing on. But you can't do that kind of you know, damn the torpedoes and completely ignore business fundamentals and ensuring that you're just uh, being responsible fiscally with your money.
0: I completely agree with what you said, and I uh, I think that's a great way to like to to frame the conversation is around fundamentals and that is that is what is so I, I, like i i always when when i have this conversation with people and like oh winter is coming like valuations are going to stop and i'm like okay well but there are fundamental things that have changed and the way that businesses are structuring themselves has fundamentally changed it's become better it's not just this uh, herd mentality insanity um so yeah i don't know it's um it's very interesting um what about the the startups selling to startups risk uh, do you do you think that is a is that anything worth discussing because like you know if you if you even if you build a business that is fundamentally profitable, if you build it on the backs of other startups and and those startups don't have sound fundamentals um, I don't know is that is that do you see that as a market risk
1: I, I certainly think that's a risk and not just in today's day and age I mean even in the way back days, there was an old saying, nobody ever got fired for choosing IBM. I don't know if you've ever heard that, right? I've heard it. But, but there was this notion that even if even if a provider might not be the perfect choice, if it's the obvious mainstream choice, right, you're, you're not going to suffer blowback. And I think you could translate that to a little bit today. Um, you know, we, we talked about the barriers of entry uh, decreasing for new companies where you can sort of outsource a lot of these and just focus on your core competencies. I absolutely think businesses should be cognizant of who they choose to partner with and what those dependencies are and, and understand what those business models are, what are the drivers for that business, how sound is that business, how healthy is it. I do think that matters. Um, unless you, you know, as, a, as a company, are willing to, you know, if, the, if the benefits of using a company that is perhaps less sound dramatically outweigh the risk, maybe those opportunities make sense. Right, But you almost have to bake in at some certain assumptions and understand what the switching costs might be you now ideally, you know one one technique that you see applied sometimes would be leveraging too, so you just pay those the double the double integration costs up front and you kind of have a primary and a secondary provider um, that's that's a technique that gets employed occasionally and it's not a bad one.
0: okay, well, to bring the conversation back to engineering, uh, I would love to talk a little bit about the structure of different teams at SendGrid. So you're the chief architect. Uh, I'd love to know about the other uh, teams or what teams you're in charge of or what teams you work with. If there's DevOps, um, give me an idea of the team structure and the culture at SendGrid. You bet.
1: Uh, so as I alluded to earlier, culture is one of the the things that was a, a huge draw for me at SendGrid. They really do walk the talk. Um, and I absolutely love that. In terms of how the teams are structured, uh, typical delivery teams that you might see uh, in many companies. So a uh, product might be divided up into a handful of delivery teams that are focused on a particular domain such as front-end, back-end, something along those lines. Uh, you also have like platform support teams for common capabilities. Uh, those teams have integrated uh, ops people which have dotted line relationships there. They're focused and dedicated on that particular delivery team. Um, the the Uh, full line relationships are in an ops organization. So you, you asked the question about DevOps and I think we're embracing that well here, just like everyone else. I think we have room for improvement and we continue to learn and evaluate and understand what's working here and what's not and just continually striving to get better.
0: Okay. Well, um, I'd love to close off with one final question. Could you describe an engineering problem around email that you would have never had to deal with if you were in another business?
1: Sure, let me, let me try and conjure what might be the best example. Um, you know, the, the most obvious one that's come to mind is, is a bit of that problem that we've described about before where we've, we have this requirement of, of having a differential where the ingress is different than the egress rates, right? So we have two cogs spinning at a different, different speed. Now that in and of itself is not a, a very unusual problem. That's, that's a typical thing that you're gonna encounter in particular in asynchronous systems. So that's a normal problem. I think the fact that this isn't just massively throughput or, the, or depth, but the width and the way that we've had to tackle that has been extremely interesting. Uh, a great learning experience for me, super smart engineers that I'm working with here. That to me is, is probably stands out as one of the most unique, unique facets for sure.
0: Very cool, okay, well that's a great place to close off. JR, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. This has been a great conversation. Uh, SendGrid's a super interesting company. You guys obviously have some very, very cool problems.
1: Thanks, Jeff. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.